everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have Elizabeth here, Elizabeth Yin from the Hustle Fund. Yay! So excited. And <laughs> this is Kelly I'm excited、Bay. to be here. <laughs> <laughs> And Lauren Nam is also here with us.、Uh, we're just gonna ask her all the questions that we want to know because we're actually quite new to the VC scene. And、um, I've heard. Elizabeth many times, and actually the first time I heard about her,、uh, her talk, she was talking about Sapples and also how she met Tony there, and she、uh, interned there for a few weeks, and and just like did some IT stuff, and that small thing really inspired her. And ever since I always remember you, Elizabeth. So that's why I, <laughs> I wish that. <laughs> Um, it, it was actually even way before Zappos at a little company that nobody's heard of. <laughs> so I'm dating myself here, but、uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Yeah, so、um, so we're for inclusive ventures, and our purpose is really to cultivate、uh, and leverage female immigrants and diverse founders and investors to create new markets. Because what our Thesis is that we think that there are a lot of problems in the world, and problems are opportunities and businesses. And when we don't get diverse perspectives, we are missing out on a lot of things that people are not seeing. And I know that Hustle Fund doesn't really, you know, it's not like a DEI fund or anything. But I know that you guys look at everything. And I know you worked at 500 startups, and the whole thesis behind 500 startup is that you just invest in a lot of things, and then <laughs> you would have a higher chance of getting unicorn. Yeah, so I just want to hear about your philosophy behind、uh, picking company, and also when during this time and day and time, people like to follow, right? And I know that you guys are oftentimes the first check. So, how do you look for signals without looking at other signals when you invest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think these are great questions. And and first off, I would say, you know, I love your mission. I think you know very much resonates with what we're trying to do at Hustle Fund. You know, for us, like I think a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you go into VC in the first place? And I actually think that the better question is like, what are we trying to do? And I think. You know, de- democratizing wealth through entrepreneurship is really what I s- would say we're trying to do.、Um, VC is certainly the first step, but we have 30 more years to work on the problem in many other ways. And、um, you know, I think part of it is coming up with new models and structures that that work well for other kinds of companies.、Um, you know, for example, we have a revenue-based financing fund as well as part of Hustle Fund, which is essentially an entrepreneur-friendly loan. Uh, which is very different from how our VC fund works. So I think, you know, bringing more entrepreneurs into the ecosystem is very important to me because I think ultimately、um, that's what you know progresses society. And I think we need to progress society in many different ways for all people, not just、uh, not just the elite and and, and not just people、um, who are well networked. So、uh, I really appreciate what you're doing. Going to your question, which is more digging in the weeds of tactics of how how do we actually pick companies?、Um, it's a good question, and I think、uh, you know, in all honesty, time will tell if we have picked right in about ten years. But I mean, I think fundamentally, there there are a couple of things that I think are really important, which you touched on.、Uh, one is portfolio construction, which is basically okay. 
who is in your, what companies did you invest in and how many of them and how much and what percentage of your fund and that kind of thing. I think that's something that is incredibly important for investors, whether it's VCs or not, because that ultimately is what allows you to diversify risk. But it is also something to consider when you're thinking about your returns as well. If you're too diversified, then you obviously cannot make money either. So, so there's a balance there. And I think, you know, to 500 startups is credit. We, we do share some philosophy there where I think when you're investing very early and you have no idea who the winners are, you do have to have some uh, large portfolio to a certain extent, because I think it's just very, very hard to consistently pick you know, a subset of, let's say, 10 companies and say that there's a unicorn in there, because I think that's just really hard. Certainly, there are VCs who do that and are successful at it. But I think for us, we wanted a strategy that could be repeatable. Like if I, you know, go and retire on an island, somebody else ought to be able to follow our playbook and and run Hustle Fund and, and be able to have the same level of results. So that's kind of where we come from on that. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I remember you, you, you said that, you know, you want to run your fund so that other people can copy you. And I, I see the same way, like absolutely. I want to be so successful that other people will copy you. So what, what do you, what would you like people to copy you on? So why don't you share with us now <laughs> the points that you want us to copy? We'll have, we're happy to copy you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when I say that, a lot of people think I'm crazy. But when you think about it, entrepreneurship is not a zero sum game. In fact, if you look at the data, there are more and more unicorns every year. And so just because somebody is successful, it doesn't take away from somebody else being successful. And I think it's one of those, you know, flywheels where if you get it going, and I would say arguably we're at a point where uh, entrepreneurship is becoming mainstream at least everybody has heard about it, you can, you can, you know, get more and more successes every year. And I truly believe that. I think there are certainly some people would, who would counter me and say, well, it is a zero sum game, but I, I don't think that's true. So I would like people to copy me, whether it's people who work at Hustle Fund or other people who are starting their own funds or angel investing. And specifically what it is, is, um, you know, diving back into the tactics. One is portfolio construction. So we do have a large portfolio we've invested in over 200 companies at Hustle Fund. And so even if any one company, you know, just completely loses our money, whether it's because the company didn't work out or customers didn't want it, or there was just bad luck involved where the founder gets sick, it doesn't matter because it's just one of 200 uh, or more companies. So that's thought number one. I think that portfolio construction really, really is important for pre-seed and even seed stage investors. Um, number two is... Why is it that we write a check so quickly? Well, I think this actually goes against the grain of what many other investors think. I think a lot of investors want to know who else is in and can we join once you have a lead investor. But when you think about it, like making money in this business is all, all about entry points and exit points. So what do I mean about that? Exit points are when a company gets acquired or maybe it goes IPO or there's some event that allows investors uh, to you know, exit the company, basically. Um, you don't control exit points as an investor. You are just along for the ride and it's really up to the founder and any opportunities that come their way, right? Entry points though, you do control as an investor. Like if a founder comes to you and says, we're raising, uh, we're raising money and it's at this valuation, you can decide whether or not you want to invest or not. Now, frankly speaking, as an investor, you have zero leverage on entry point if every investor is trying to invest in the company right now. 
because what ends up happening is, you know, investors all have different thresholds at which they think is a good valuation or a fair valuation. And you, you know, if, if, if investors uh, come up with a valuation that's higher than yours, you, you can't go to the founder and say, Hey, I wanted to take my check for this half the valuation of what you're getting from other people, right? You have zero leverage. The best time as an investor is when you do actually have leverage. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think, you know, going earlier gives you more leverage when there are no other investors at the table, you have a lot more negotiating power around valuation. Now, the founder obviously can choose to walk as well. Oh, we don't think this valuation is fair or whatever it is. But I think for for uh, from an investor perspective, like, you know, you can then get in at much better valuations than when everybody else is at the table. And I think especially in this market where you see um, valuations going up like crazy, like I'm seeing pre-seed companies raising at 20, 30 million post money valuation and they have nothing, no revenue no customers. Um, you know, to me, in most cases, not all, there are always exceptions, but in most cases, that's just crazy. And what is driving those is those situations is just there are a lot of investors at the table wanting to invest. That's really all it is. It's all about supply and demand. So I think coming back to your point, like, why is it that we go in so early? I mean, I think part of it is we're willing to take on more risk for potentially more reward. If I can get in at half the valuation of a seed investor, I don't need the exit to be twice as big. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And therefore, we are actually more aligned with the entrepreneur as well. If an entrepreneur wants to sell for $300 million, which don't get me wrong, is still a very high price. For a lot of investors, that's not good enough. But for us, like that could actually make the, our model work well. So I'll pause there. But that's kind of the, the two main things that we're, we're getting at. That sounds a lot like uh, FJ Labs, where they're doing a, a massive number of uh, deal flows. Um, just curious, have you? How has? How have you adjusted your due diligence um, to support this flow and speed? Well, since we've always had this model, we haven't changed anything. But I would <laughs> say that relative to other funds or even angels, uh, you know, I would even go as far as to say that. Once you talk with us, we are the fastest check. Um, I have committed to, I think, three or four companies on the spot in a conversation. And then for all the other companies, you know, we usually do one conversation, sometimes two if it gets cut off short or there are nuances we don't understand, um, but then can make a decision within 48 hours. And part of the reason why we can have this speed is that uh, because we're going in so early and there's not a lot of information to begin with, there's really not a whole lot to dig into. We limit our check size. So we're writing $25,000 checks and relative to the size of our fund, it's super small. Um, it comes out to about uh, point, less than 0.1% of the fund. So it's very small. And that allows us to be able to take that risk and move fast. And um, And so as a result then, you know, you don't have to get the due diligence right. And I think that the last point I would say about this is, and why we also invest at Pre-Seed is from a risk perspective, I think you can do all the due diligence you want at Pre-Seed, but it really won't help you get better returns. And I think you can also do all the due diligence you want at Seed, and it still won't help you. And the reason is a lot of companies fail to become big because 
of lack of product market fit. I mean, there are many other reasons why companies fail, including team issues, but product, lack of product market fit is what will prevent you from being a big company. And so therefore, it doesn't matter to me, like from a risk perspective, whether I go in at pre-seed or seed, because that risk is still on the table. Like seed companies still haven't figured out product market fit, but the valuation could be two to three times as high as what I'm getting in at, at pre-seed, pre-revenue. So that's why I'm willing to take on that extra so-called risk because I don't actually think it's more risk, but the rewards are two to three X higher. So that's kind of how I think about things just simply from a modeling or portfolio construction perspective. So then if that's the case, what do you say no to? It seems like, oh, just you just take on so much risk <laughs> and I'm not sure if this product market fits. So what do you exactly look for then? Yeah. Okay. So then how do we actually pick? So for me, it's basically two things. There are obviously other things that are important too, but the two main things come down to team and customer acquisition potential, I guess you could call it. Market pull is what I would call it. So team, uh, let's start with team. So team, I think team is really hard to assess in a conversation. Um, you know, there are a lot of good talkers out there and you know having previously run an accelerator you can be very well coached to present very well <laughs> in fact that was kind of my job for almost three years right uh get people really ready for demo day and be able to talk with other investors and sell the dream um, but that doesn't mean you're good at running a business and and vice versa as well there are a lot of people who are not good at that have not been coached well and are very good at running a business so I think that can be hard, but you do the best you can. And I try to understand, okay, like what is the team doing? And based on what they're doing, are they executing with speed? That's really important to me. Uh, burn rate and how they manage their money is also really important to me. And then I think also just being able to answer questions uh, concisely and thoughtfully, and that's subjective, but is also important to me. So those are kind of the things I look for in team that hustle component, the burn rate component, and, and thoughtful answers to questions. But then market pull, which I would argue is actually the more important part to me, is like all the market conditions. So number one, is this in a crowded space? For me, that's pretty much an automatic no in almost all cases. Or is this not really differentiated from all the other things I'm seeing? Almost always an automatic no. Even if the team is amazing, I've just seen too many people you know, fail because they're just fighting to get customers from these 10 other companies who are trying to do the exact same thing and their customers just have no mind share for them because it's so crowded. It's like, you know, just look at all the people who cold email you and try to sell you something. Like I get cold emails for IT services all the time. Like how can you tell them all apart? You can't, it's a crowded space. So, so those are the things that I look for in market pull, but also just the business itself. Like I've done a lot of customer acquisition in my life as an entrepreneur and it is really hard. And most ideas, it is really impossible to get customers to make the unit economics work. Like, and what do I mean by unit economics? Like, are you making more money than what it costs you to get a customer? That is easy for the first few customers. It is hard at scale because your customer acquisition costs only go up. And so as a result, I use a lot of intuition around, do I think the sales cycle will be fast? Do I think the unit economics will have enough spread in between the the cost and how much i can make and based on that if i think the market pull has strong potential and 
remember, I'm not investing on revenue. So it's all entirely potential that's in my head, which can be completely wrong. Um, then I will, you know, decide to invest assuming that the team seemingly checks out. But I think the market poll is the most important thing of the, you know, of everything and of the two, certainly. Because I see that you have a really good social media brand, like pretty good brand for Hustle Fund for, for just a short few years. So how do you, how have you been able to leverage that? And then the, I guess the other thing is how do you leverage your co-investors? How have, how are you aligning with them? Yeah, I think brand is really important and increasingly important for investors. You know, there are now over 1,000 microfunds out there and money is a commodity. Like we are a commodity business like anybody else. And so, you know, how do you distinguish yourselves and differentiate as we were just talking about? <laughs> like, I don't think anyone would fund us because we're not differentiated, but you know, how do you differentiate from everyone else? And so for me, I think, you know, I share a lot of learnings that I had in running my business or side projects that went nowhere. Uh, or also learnings from my portfolio companies over the year. I've probably years. I've probably had over 400 portfolio companies in total, amongst 500 startups and hustle fund and my my own personal portfolio as well. So, sharing those learnings, I think, fits our mission. We want to spread knowledge, and you know, I think uh, giving credit to Eric Reese for promoting Lean Startup, which I think actually has decrease the number of failures in the startup world. I think the more that we can increase knowledge around customer acquisition and how you raise money are important topics as well. And that's what we try to do, uh, which fits in, I think, with our brand. So actually, 15% of the companies we've invested in to date for Hustle Fund have come in completely cold, no referral, just through the application on our website. So then the other question that I also ask, I guess I shouldn't be asking two questions at once all the time. So what are some of the co-investors that you like had good relationship working with and how have you guys collaborate? We very much leave it to the founder to kind of drive their fundraising strategy, I guess you could call it. I certainly weigh in because I've seen a lot of fundraising, but obviously whether a company wants to raise more money beyond our check is completely up to them. Now we have done a lot of introductions. I'm very supportive of whatever they decide to do, but it's largely been founder led. I don't, I don't say, you know, Hey, now that you've taken my money, go and raise from these people. That that's just not how we operate. But that being said, if the founder is like, I want to raise half a million dollars, uh, then I say, okay, great. Let's make a list together and they'll have some names and then I'll have some suggestions based on what they're doing. A lot of my co-investor suggestions are based on a couple of things. One is certainly what the idea is like, I spend a lot of time trying to get to know other investors in the ecosystem because we are a small check. We are very collaborative, um, but I don't want to waste anybody's time. So I want to understand what do investors really like? What do they really hate? And I, and I think at this point in time, I have a pretty good sense of which investors are interested in which ideas. And so as such, I think that's an important factor. And then the other thing is also around investor behavior. So over the years, how have investors treated my introductions? Uh, did they ghost on the founders? Did they move with speed? Uh, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how I feel about different investors. But I do know that at the end of the day, 
you know, to the point earlier, in order for my companies to get a bump up in their valuation, they need to be bringing a lot of investors to the table. So we do try to do a lot of introductions to help them with that. And uh, at, at, at the end, like whoever shakes out and wants to invest, kind of leave it a lot up to the founder to decide. And we don't get involved in that process. We may have some inputs or opinions, but don't, you know, we don't make the decisions. So um, one, one question I had more related to um, VC and entrepreneurship in general, what are some of the biggest unknown or even just your favorite trend or thesis you're tracking? You mean in terms of ideas, like market trends or uh, yeah. trends with the VC industry? Investment, investment theses. Like maybe other people would disagree with type of trend. That yeah, like it's if controversy. Yeah, like you, if you say this out loud and people are listening in Clubhouse, they're like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so here's a contentious one. Uh, what do people think about blockchain and crypto? <laughs> I, I've definitely seen, like, I, I've never heard anyone say, oh, I, I'm lukewarm on crypto or blockchain. I, other people are really like, yes, it's the future. And other people are like, no, this is dumb. It's not. And I think that I am actually quite bullish. Uh, it may take a while, but I'm quite bullish on blockchain, certainly, and maybe crypto, depending on how regulations go. So, um, and the reason is, I think, you know, we even see it this morning. Uh, so for the listeners this morning, what happened was Robinhood decided to stop the trading of GameStop and some other stocks because uh, for the last few days, GameStop, you know, has been a contentious issue. A lot of retail investors are trying to prop the price up. And there are a lot of Wall Street short sellers who are trying to cover their losses. So that's sort of what's going on as some context. But I mean, I think a philosophical question is, should Robinhood, and this is shy of any government regulations, the government has not stepped in, but should Robinhood stop uh, the trading of the stock? They're a private company, they can do whatever they want, certainly. But I think, you know, from a retail investor perspective, if I were using Robinhood, I would be pretty upset because they are essentially holding my trades hostage. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who are going to lose money on the retail side because of this. Uh, and those are precisely the customers they're trying to serve. And so you have to ask the question of like, how much power should a company have? And now there's this question of, should there be essentially a decentralized stock exchange or brokerage firm? And I don't think it's a bad question to be asking because if your brokerage firm can do whatever it wants, then that's a problem. That's a problem. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this because people are starting to distrust large companies. And uh, we see this in other ways as well, but um, that's why I'm fairly bullish. Now, I think a lot of things will need to be hammered out as to how do you build a decentralized company? What does that even mean? How do you really remove controls and things like that? And then also regulation of tokens, if that you know enters the scene as well, like all of those are complications, but I think conceptually the trends are right for that. Just want to throw a whole bunch of things at you and um, you can skip past however you like it. What's your favorite book or blog you've recently read? book or blog? Well, I think as far as blogs go, um, I, I think Alex Danko's writing is some of the most insightful and thought provoking. 
I don't even know how to put a topic on it, but it's basically a hodgepodge of random topics that are thought provoking, generally related to business. Cool. Awesome. How much sleep do you get a night? Not enough. (laughs) Anywhere between five and eight hours. And finally, what's your favorite incubator that's not 500? Oh, wow. Well, I, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to YC. Um, They have done a phenomenal job in building their machine and big props to them. You know, it's hard to keep something sustaining like that, where you can just keep printing unicorns every year. (laughs) Oh, just a quick on to that. What's a (laughs) non-YC? And this is like, just not the top three. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) off off the beaten path accelerator program? I think there's a few that have made, you know, TechCrunch and Verb headlines quite a bit. But um, what's something that our viewers should be aware of? I'll give you an off the beaten path one. Uh, Creative Destruction Lab. So they don't take equity. They are a deep tech accelerator of sorts. It is about a nine-month program. Their initial program started in Toronto, but they now have programs in the UK, Atlanta, and uh, some other places that I'm blanking out, all over Canada, like um, Western Canada and Eastern Canada as well, Montreal. Um, But Toronto is still their largest one. Definitely check it out if you're a deep tech company. Yay. Awesome. Good question, Lauren. But I want to ask, how are you changing the world and how can anyone that's listening help you with it? Well, thank you. We think we're changing the world by, again, this is a trite phrase, but like democratizing wealth through entrepreneurship. So we are trying to basically get more entrepreneurs started, um, you know, just getting on the first rung of the ladder. And that is, you know, through RBC fund. And then we have a whole slew of unannounced programs and funding sources as well that have been working in pseudo stealth. Um, And I think that we continue to create more programs and more funds to continue to do that. I think the other thing as part of that is we're trying to bring in more funders into the scene. So beyond VCs, I think encouraging more angels as well through our our programs. And so I think all these things combined, like we are really trying to generate a very vibrant startup ecosystem or, or trying to push that forward, I would say, on a global scale. Yay. Thank you so much for being here with us. For having me. All right. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Bye. Bye.